Our reading today is from Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, everyone. I am so blessed to be with all of you today. Um, in this new year. For those of you who do not know me, uh, my name is David McKay. I am a member here at the Painted Door and also a member of the Preaching Cohort. And I get to um, share a message from the Word today from the Book of Romans that we just read today. Um, And we're going to get to delve into some of the fun, nitty-gritty, interesting uh, concepts known as uh, justification and sanctification, um, so that we can learn a little bit more about our salvation and learn a little bit more about what it means to be united to the one person of Christ. Um, So I'm just really excited to be with you guys today um, as I learn to um, continue to bring God's word to you and also that we can learn together how this works. I appreciate your kindness as I deal with nerves, and do my best to just bring the word of God because it is good news for all of us. Um, So I actually haven't been in this building for a good chunk of time. I think that might be the case for many of us. Um, We're just coming off of the Christmas season, the New Year's season, um, and so we're all kind of getting back into the swing of things. So I kind of want to start by reflecting back on some of the places that our church has been going um, over the past five, six months or so, kind of leading us to this point now. So we just have exited the season of Advent, um, which historically is a time that the church um, anticipates and longs for the coming of a Savior, um, coming of Jesus Christ to earth. This is a period of time where we reflect on the mystery and the majesty of the fact that the God of the entire universe um, became 100% strangely human, and that we rejoice in that fact that God found it good that he would become us, that he would become incarnated as a human. And 
wonderfully enough, that advent, that hope for the coming Messiah ties so deeply into the time that we're going to be working through now as we get back into Romans. So if you remember before the Advent season, we spent a good chunk of time doing kind of a broad overview of the entire book of Romans. You might remember uh, members of our church, me included, coming up here and for 15, 20, 25 minutes just reading large chunks of scripture as we read through the entire book of Romans over the course of um, several weeks. So now after we kind of got that broad overview, we're coming back to Romans and we're going to do kind of a deep dive of Romans chapter 5 through 8 as we examine the one man of Christ, this Christ that was given to us at Christmas time that we um, reflect on and are thankful for, and why this one man of Christ is good news for us and changes absolutely everything. So, why then is this one man important? It is important because we are part of a humanity that is in desperate straits. The life that we are a part of now, naturally, is one that ultimately leads to death. Um, Throughout all of history, humanity strives to find what it would find to be good and truthful and right and motivated out of goodness, but it ultimately leads to destruction and pain and frustration and division that we continue to see today. You look around the world country, our state, and down to our city and our city blocks, people are not right with one another. Their humanity is leading them to selfishness and pain and destruction and frustration. And so we have no ability to escape from this. This is part of our lineage. This is a part of who we have been back through time, through history, all the way to Adam. And many of you are probably familiar with the story of Adam and Eve in the book of Genesis, where the first man and the first woman decided that they would forge a path of their own, go separate from what God who had created them gave them, the goodness of life that God had gave them, and they forged a path of their own, of a humanity on their terms. And so, breaking from the union with God that they had and seeking the knowledge of good and evil, this first man and this first woman created a humanity that we continue the unbroken line today. We as humans are in the line of Adam. Um, And this is the humanity that we are a part in. And this is the language that Paul uses throughout the book of Romans to essentially describe the humanity that everyone is naturally a part of. It's um, being in the line of Adam. Later on in this uh, chapter, Uh, In Romans 5.17, Paul talks about it like this. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For, as by the one man's disobedience that many were made sinners, 
so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. And so this is the obedience that we are going to be looking at throughout this time as we're diving deep into the book of Romans, the obedience of the one man, Jesus Christ. And this is the good news that we get to share in today and we get to look in. And so I'm going to be looking specifically in the passage that we read uh, at the beginning of verses 1 through 11 and delving into the theological concepts of justification and sanctification. So the way that we're going to do this is I'm going to start off talking a little bit about what justification is, what this concept is all about, then we're going to move into what sanctification is, and then we're going to talk about how being in the one man of Jesus Christ is the only way that any of this is even made possible. All right, so first with justification, I'm going to be reading the first verse of chapter 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So, I don't know about many of you, but my story is one that is rather nice and blessed, and I'm very grateful for it. I actually grew up in a Christian family, and so for me, the concept of what it meant to be made right with God was kind of just part of my DNA growing up. I always heard that it's important that you accept Christ and that you have Christ as your Savior in order that you will be able to be made right with God. And so for me, I was never like frustrated or angry about that. It was never something that was a guilt-inducing thing. It was a thing that ultimately led to a great amount of gratefulness. Uh, during, for example, the Easter season, a lot of the times when I would see depictions of Christ on the cross and see the sacrifice that he made um, during his passion, a huge well of gratefulness would come from me, and I would be so thankful that what Christ did made it possible for me to be right with God. But that was kind of a, a really baseline understanding. I knew that there was something that Jesus did in his death that made it possible that I would be able to be saved, and I knew that that was the thing I needed to turn to. And I think that was a really good thing. But I also think that sometimes our understanding of what actually happens there beyond that it's true is somewhat lacking and sometimes put in a little bit of the wrong place of understanding. Um, and Paul actually talks a little bit about this in the previous chapter, chapter four that we're moving into. As he talks about the faith of Abraham and the faith of people before us, he likens that to our faith that we have in putting our trust into Jesus Christ. And this is the faith that allows us to have salvation. And I think many of us understand that, that we need to turn from our evil ways and turn to Christ. Um, But that's only one half of the equation when it comes to justification. And so before I go any further, I think it's important for me to stop using the big Bible college theological term of justification and kind of break it down a little bit um, so that we can kind of have a shared understanding of what it means when I'm talking about that word. So I personally found that uh, Marcus Johnson's definition of justification is extremely helpful, and I'll use that to kind of unpack what we're talking about here with justification. So justification is the benefit of our union with Christ in his life, death, and resurrection in which God declares us to be righteous through forgiveness of our sins and the imputation of Christ's righteousness. 
So in that definition, there are really two primary things that we need to be looking at. There is the forgiveness of sins and the imputation of Christ's righteousness, or the giving of Christ, the, 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 the taking on of Christ's righteousness. And so growing up, my understanding of what it meant to be saved primarily consisted of just that first part of the definition, that in Christ, um, it's kind of like a, a, a courtroom. I think as a lot of us might have heard this um, metaphor of when Christ died on the cross, it was similar to as if we were brought into a courtroom with God as the judge, and God said, you are guilty of sin, you are in the humanity of Adam, and therefore you are guilty of sin, and the punishment of that sin is death, and then Christ came and said, I will take the punishment of sins, and therefore the punishment, you will not have to bear the punishment, and you will be set free, essentially. And that was sort of the salvation that I was operating out of. And it was a good news because I didn't have to face death. I knew that as a child, if I accepted Christ as my savior, I wouldn't have to go die. I would be saved. And that's sort of where it all stopped. It was justification is Jesus washing away my sins. Um, And therefore, kind of a blank slate, now I have the opportunity through the power of the Holy Spirit and through the grace of God to start making David McKay a more holy person because of the work of Christ. And that's so much of kind of the work I did and so much of my um, time through growing up in high school, being in Bible college and all of that was this effort in order to better myself and a better my ability to be more like Christ out of gratitude and also just looking to the, the example of Christ. But the fact of the matter is if, is if that was all that our salvation was, it would just be so sad and frustrating and scary because that will ultimately lead us to a moralistic and frustrating and impossible task of being like God. Um, on our own efforts, if we were to strive from nowhere, like that would just be a momentous task. It would be climbing a mountain with no gear and no ability to ever reach the top. And that's kind of the hopelessness that I started to fall into is that how am I ever going to be able to get rid of as much sin as possible? How am I ever going to be able to do a good enough job that I'm going to be able to achieve a righteousness that God will see is good? Brothers and sisters, there is actually good news in that in our salvation, in our faith leading us to the person of Jesus Christ, we not only have our sins removed, we also are given the righteousness of Christ. And upon realizing that, upon realizing that it's not just um, wiping the slate clean and allowing us to grow closer to God, but also that we are given something uh, called righteousness, that God looks on us and sees Jesus— that was a moment of growth that was so freeing and so exciting because I realized I no longer had to stir up enough good works or enough thankfulness or anything like that. I needed not produce anything towards God that would make him delight in what David McKay was becoming, but rather he would look on me and see Christ. So, I kind of got to this place of being like, great, Not only are my sins washed away, but I have a righteousness of Christ. But I also found as I grew and learned and understood that my understanding of this righteousness was somewhat 
abstracted and turned into a bit of an object. I had this understanding through language of like the great exchange and um, other topics like that that theologians would talk about is that I have this like box of unrighteousness and I come to Christ and not only does he take the penalty of my sin, he takes this box of unrighteousness and he hands me his box of righteousness. And so then when I go before God, I am um, no longer have to bear the penalty of my death and I'm holding this box of righteousness. And that was just sort of like, it wasn't something so much that bothered me, but it was just an area that was somewhat un- unexamined. Um, I was able to grow in the hope of not having to make it work myself and still being able to do that. But it then led me to a bit of a place of then why should I do anything good at all? If I'm, if I'm set with God, if he's already given me all of his righteousness, what room is there for me to really do anything? Do I become a bit of a Christian nihilist and say, well, it's all been done. Do I just sort of coast all the way um, until my death? It just seemed like that wasn't fully expressing the whole of what so much scripture said with language of talking about being holy and talking about language of doing um, things like caring for the least of these, the widows, the orphans. And I just couldn't quite understand why having the righteousness of Christ seemed to lead to a place of just laziness and no response. To me, it seemed almost better when I didn't have this understanding of Christ's righteousness being mine, that at least I was doing something that felt like it was working towards something. Um, And so what I came to discover and understand is that this righteousness cannot be understood as kind of an idealized sort of platonic form of like what righteousness is, but that righteousness cannot be separated at all from the actual person of Christ. Um, And this is actually the language that Paul uses in Romans 6, 1 through 4, when talking about whether or not we should sin so that grace would abound more. Paul says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can you who died in sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who had been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So what Paul is essentially saying here is not, should we go on sinning so that grace may abound by no means? Don't you know like what Christ did for you and you should be really grateful and really, you know, you have this new life and Christ is making it possible for you to do a really good job and you just need to really spur up your more effort. Come on, like, rah, rah, let's go, guys. Let's get this done. No, what Paul says is more or less, don't you know who you are now? Don't you realize that you, in your baptism, we're united to the very person of Christ and you are actually participating in his death and in his resurrection. And hearing that sounds really weird. It's, it's, it doesn't feel in our lives like that's a reality that's going on that in some strange but real way we are actually united in the actual life and death of Christ. And that is the linchpin of what our justification is. It's not that we are just given this package of righteousness, but it's that the very life of Christ is being lived out in us. We are unescapably being united into Christ. 
And so <laughs> this is kind of, for me, it seemed like such a new concept when I first heard about this. I heard about this in one of my classes uh, as I was studying in college, this idea of our salvation being a part of being united to Christ. Um, I actually, at that point before then, had kind of thought it was a little bit silly when we talked to children about this language of like asking Jesus into your heart. That to me just seemed like a really weird thing to say. But then kind of, then at that point, I realized so much of what that is saying is there's a real presence of Christ. There's a real actual being united to Christ that's happening there. And like I said, I thought this was kind of a new idea that maybe like some fringe, uh, area of Christianity was talking about. They're coming up with a new idea of expressing what it means to be one with Christ. Um, but what I found out is that this is a very old and very ancient way of understanding what our salvation is. Um, Martin Luther, who is pretty important for the whole Protestant thing that we're a part of, actually said this, uh, but so far as justification is concerned, Christ and I must be so closely attached that he lives in me and I in him. What a marvelous way of speaking, because he lives in me, whatever grace, righteousness, life, peace, and salvation there is in me is all Christ's. Nevertheless, it is mine as well. By the cementing and attachment that are through faith by which we become as one body in the spirit. And this is just so strange because how is it possible that we living our lives in this world are able to be part of the one body of Christ who lived 2,000 years ago? This just doesn't really jive well with my kind of you know, Greco-Roman ideas of like, you know, these concepts that can exist in the world. Like, it's so messy and dirty. Um, But Martin Luther wasn't the only one that said this. John Calvin also said, therefore, to share with us what he received from the Father, he had to become ours and dwell within us. And again, this language, like, I think we sterilize it sometimes. Like, oh yeah, Christ, you know, comes into my heart. But there's something really strange about this language of like Christ coming and indwelling us and making us part of him that I think is meant to shock us a little bit. I think scripture wants us to wake up and say, no, something new, something strange is happening. That by faith, we are able through the power of the Holy Spirit to in a really real way, not just in a like a metaphorical way that like helps us understand, but in a very real mysterious way, We are united to the actual life of Christ. And this is why it's so important that Christ came as an actual human. Um, If if all we needed was God to give us a box of righteousness, there's no reason for him to take on the full humanity of humans. I think sometimes we think, oh, it's such a nice thing that he did this, but it's actually so necessary because we need an actual human life that we can be united to. There is no uh, part of us that can be united to the divine unless it is united to real physical humanity. You cannot bifurcate yourself into a spiritual part and a physical part. You are one being that needs to be united to one being whose life and righteousness and goodness makes it possible for us to be brought back to the way things were meant to be at creation when humanity was created with a direct connection to God. And this is the one man that we are looking for. And this is why justification is so important for us and why we need this one man. And so, once we receive this justification, 
as Calvin alluded to here, we then have all of the wholeness and the fullness of the life of Christ living out in us. And this is where the concept of sanctification comes in. So I will uh, read uh, Marcus Johnson's definition of sanctification so that we can kind of go from a same working definition here. So, sanctification is that benefit of our union with Christ in which God, through the power and presence of the Holy Spirit, delivers us from our depraved natures by transforming us into the holy image of Jesus Christ through our participation in his death and resurrection. So, now that we have received the actual righteousness of Christ that he produced through living a life here on this earth by his perfect obedience through his life and then ultimately culminating in his death, we get to share in that. We get the opportunity to live a life that is more or less pouring out the realities of what Christ um, already did for us on this earth. So much of my experience growing up was a real thankfulness for the death of Christ and understanding the real importance of that, but not necessarily understanding why there was 33 years of life leading up to that. It seemed like uh, I don't fully understand what the value and the importance is of Christ being born and living in obscurity for 30 years and then having three years of ministry and dying. So much of my understanding was the death of Christ allowed us to be made right with God, but what was all that stuff? Was it just to teach us? Was it just, you know, thank goodness we had God there for a little bit while so we could get some of our theology straight? What was going on with the time that Christ was actually spending on this earth? And the reality is it was Christ living out in full humanity the perfect expression of what it means to be human, of what it is for us to be right with God. And the very same spirit that came upon Christ at his baptism is made available to us now. And this is what unites us to Christ. And this is what allows us to come to know him and be able to grow and grow closer to that level of righteousness and holiness in a strange way. We already have it all within us in the person of Christ. And yet we are also able to work towards it and grow through the life of Christ manifesting fruit in us. So in Romans 5, uh, chapter, verse 2, going uh, through verse 5, Paul talks about it this way. Through him, who we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. And so this is sort of the understanding that we have, is that once we are made united to the person of Christ, we have the opportunity to go through life living in a way similar to what he lived, because the life of Christ was one of endurance and suffering and pain. And I think sometimes when we talk about sanctification in the church, we always talk about it as this ascent towards holiness. But in a lot of ways, it is a perseverance through suffering, through frustration, through 
having to walk by faith and not by sight when it seems like no matter how long I've been at this Christian thing, I feel like I'm further behind than I ever was when I was a moralist able to, you know, work harder towards being a better person. I feel like I'm back to where I started so often. But this endurance is the fact that we have access to the very person of Christ, that we need not fret about our ability to get enough effort in and make sure that we can do enough good things, we are able to basically rejoice in the fact that we have Christ in us. And again, this isn't just a new concept. This is something that has been spoken to and affirmed throughout church history. Part of the Westminster Larger Catechism actually asks, what is that union which the elect have with Christ? And the answer to that question is, the union which the elect have with Christ is the work of God's grace, whereby they are spiritually and mystically, yet really and inseparably joined to Christ as their head and husband, which is done in their effectual calling. This uniting, this being united to God is meant to be a mirror of what we understand that scripture teaches us about in marriage and that a man and a woman come together and are united and the two become one flesh. And this is something that while we by sight see these as two different individuals, we by faith understand that there's something new taking place there, that these two have become one. And that ought to be our understanding of just as a married couple grows together and they become this unit and new life springs forth out of this relationship, so too as we are united to Christ, we are annihilated. Our individuality isn't completely wiped away, but we are also inseparable from the person of Christ and it is his righteousness that is living out through us. And so, Jesus Christ is not just our sanctifier. He is not just the person who is like our coach cheering us on towards being a better person and pointing the way towards God. And it's not just because we have like the secret sauce of the Holy Spirit in us that makes us, you know, have essentially steroids that lets us lift harder to be more holy. Jesus Christ himself is our sanctification. It is the very life of Christ that is living out through us. And this is actually the way that Christ even talked about himself when he would explain what it meant that he was the Savior. In John 15, 5, he said, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. This language for me, often just didn't hit home in the fact that what Christ is saying is that there is no such thing as producing fruits of the Spirit apart from being united to the life-giving roots and vine of Christ. And we are grafted in. There's language throughout Scripture of how we are these branches grafted into the life of Christ. Um, And this is why Christ was talking about a new life that he was giving. It was something completely separate from the natural lives that we were born into, these lives of Adam. We are being grafted into the new life of Christ. And so all of the blessings of salvation flow into us upon being united to Christ. We do not need to make our salvation. We don't need to prove it. We don't need to show God how grateful we are. We have full access to the entire perfect life of Christ. And therefore, we don't strive to sin less so that we can prove to God how grateful we are, but rather we just get to participate in what is already flowing through our veins 
It's the life of Christ in us. And so moving on to the final thing I want to talk about is this one life of Christ, this one person, understanding what justification is, understanding what sanctification is. Why is it then that Christ is the one man that makes this possible? So Paul concludes this passage of scripture in verse 6 saying, For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Paul is saying here, it's that the life of Christ proves to us that it is a good salvation in how wholly different it is from anything else that has ever existed. Paul here uses the example of no one around here would ever die for anyone, even no matter how good it is. Maybe there's a few people out there that would be willing to sacrifice their life for a good person, but no one around here would be willing to take their life and trade it for a whole terrible person. And that's what he's saying is that the person of Christ is wholly different is essentially what he's saying here. He's saying Christ is not just like you and me. He is not just merely another person in the lineage of Adam that achieved the height of what it is possible to be the best human possible and we should follow his example. But rather, he is the incarnated God in humanity providing for us a brand new way of living. Jesus, when talking to Nicodemus one night, said, in order to go to the kingdom of heaven, you must be born again. And Nicodemus said, what are you talking about? Like, you want me to climb back into my mother and like be born again. And Jesus kind of left that a little bit of mystery there. He's like, yeah, you need to be born again. There's a new life that is mysterious and born of spirit and water. And there's just this language of like, what are you talking about? But this is the new birth that we have access to is that we lived a life in the lineage of the one man of Adam. And now we can live new life in the lineage of the one man, Jesus Christ. And it is because of his vicarious life for us that atones us, that we have any hope of salvation. It's not merely that the work of Christ on the cross makes it possible for us to do a better job and live like a righteous person, but that we are fundamentally united to the righteousness of God, who is Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 15.22 says, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. And Jesus was clear about it as well, um, to the point of being willing to turn away all of the following he had. He had thousands of people following him, and then he dropped this bombshell on his followers, saying in John six fifty three, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. And then moving down to verse 60, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? And they left and they all walked away. And then moving down to verse 66, after many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? 
Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus was unwilling to clarify his statements that everyone walked away. People heard, you want us to do what? You want us to eat you? And that's salvation? They said, no, we're not having a part of this. You know, thanks for the loaves and fishes. I'm not going that far. Uh, that's just a little too weird. And they walked away. And Jesus could have at this point said, no, 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 I just mean metaphorically. It's not quite what you're understanding. It's just kind of like a nice idea, like you need to have me. And he's, he, he left it sit there. And there's a mystery and a weirdness and a wonder to what Jesus' statement is there. Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no salvation within you. Jesus himself knew that the only way for us to live out the perfect humanity that God originally created us for is for him to be our new Adam, that we can be entered into the new humanity that is offered to us in Christ. And so it is not just the death of Christ that lets us check off the box on being on God's good side. We are now participating in the perfect obedience of Christ's life. So the vinyl verse in this passage shows us that the proper response is to rejoice and to celebrate because ultimately this is good news. We no longer have to strive under our own efforts. I no longer had to figure out what it meant to be a good enough Christian and have all of this. This turning point in my understanding of justification and sanctification meant that everything I did was living out the life that poured through me, through the vine, into me a branch. And that there is freedom and joy, even though that is in the midst of suffering and pain. Not only was the one person of Christ offered to us at the time of our salvation, he is now offered to us today, regularly. Through the power of the Holy Spirit uniting us to the person of Christ, we get to experience him here with the body of Christ in one another and at the tables here. So the proper response to our justification and our sanctification is to rejoice, is to sing, and to know that the salvation we have is not wrought by our own hands, but is a free gift of God in the very one man of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that through your spirit we have access to you through Christ. And Lord, we admit that we have such a hard time seeing this truth and have such a hard time understanding that in you we have life and we need to do nothing but live out the reality that we already have. Open up our eyes, help us to see that we live this new life provided to us and help us to rejoice and sing. In Jesus' name, amen.